There's a clap. <laughs> are, we, um, are we recording? We're recording. We're ready to go. Recording, recording, recording. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so by way of introduction, Mike Stag, Stagloiza, one of the top toxic tort firms in the United States, very, very well-respected attorney throughout the United States. And uh, Mike, so happy to have you here uh, with us today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Bob. Looks, this is going to be fun. It is. Yeah. It is going to be fun. We've had uh, a bunch of different lawyers, but I think you're our, our furthest away, and you're in New Orleans now. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you ended up in New Orleans and and uh, just becoming a lawyer. So we have a lot of law students, people who aren't lawyers who who watch, and they. I think part your story is really important to all of us. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado long way from New Orleans, had never been to New Orleans or even the South really before. Um, and, uh, you know, my, when I was in high school, I went to a Jesuit high school and they really instilled a sense of, you know, trying to be uh, a man for others. It was an all boys school. And, um, you know, uh, and when I decided to go to to college, I wanted to go to a smaller school. I didn't feel comfortable going to a, a big college. And I started looking around and I had originally, I was in Marquette in Wisconsin and planning to go there, went and checked it out. It was freezing cold. And on a lark, I came down to New Orleans and New Orleans kind of blew me away. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, if you haven't been here, it's not really a Southern city. It's more like the Northern Caribbean. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of got, you know, a, a, uh, you know, you're in the United States, but you're not really in the United States kind of feel to it. It's a and place just really like any other, uh, maybe. fell in love with the city and decided, well, I'll, I'll try it here and see where it goes. And, you know, I, I, I haven't really looked back. So, so were you a Tulane guy? I actually, I went to, I went to, I went to a Loyola University in New Orleans. Okay. Um, because it's, uh, it was another, it was a small Jesuit college. And then, um, and I really thought I was going to go into, um, you know, I got, I got a degree in business. I really want to go into business. And I went uh, back to Colorado and it was like the banking, one of the, one of the many banking crises when I graduated. And uh, it was a little difficult to get a job, but I ended up getting a job, um, you know, as a stockbroker, which was interesting, but it kind of felt like more like a sales job. It was a little bit more of a hustle. Um, and that was good for me because it helped. I think I was a little bit introverted. It helped me get a little bit more extroverted and, and kind of understand sales a little bit. And it was interesting learning a little bit more about the market from a practical standpoint. But I knew I wanted to do something different with my life. I knew I wanted to do more than, you know, transactional stuff. I wanted to really try to help people somehow. And my, my, one of my closest college buddies and roommate, his father was a lawyer. And he's, he at some point sent, said to us, why don't you guys think about going to law school, you know? And, and then I kind of, they kind of planted a seed, and, and then I ended up going, going to law school, uh, thinking, again, I would go into business law, like tax law or something like that. And, um, and then I had an opportunity to, you know, while I was in law school, I was a bartender at Emerald's Restaurant here in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Emerald's is cool because it was like, Emerald had just left Commander's Palace. Emerald's restaurant was uh, the only, his only restaurant. He was just 
kind of getting going. He was big in New Orleans, but not big nationally. And um, he used to come in the restaurant, and you know, I'd fix him his cappuccino or espresso. It was really espresso. That's what he liked, espressos in the morning. And he was meeting with his publicist, working on his book, and and he was really good about business. And one of the, you know, I learned some things about business from, you know, how Emerald did things and how he really builds a team and gets people, you know, jazzed up. Every night's like a performance, you know what I mean? And so I learned a lot there while I was in law school and um, and actually met a judge who loved to go to lunch at Emerald's. And uh, he invited me to clerk with him. He was a trial judge here locally in, in New Orleans. And so through that, I got to see trial work and just fell in love with trial work. And I was like, I can't, I just don't want to do the tax or the banking or the business. I want to go and be a trial lawyer. And that's kind of what happened. And so I know a lot of trial lawyers, you know, a lot of trial lawyers, but your persona, you have, so, so for the people who don't know, you have real results that almost no trial lawyer in the whole world has. uh, I mean, I don't want to steal your thunder. Tell, tell us about, there's one in particular, a really famous one. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was really fortunate early on. Um, you know, I didn't have kids, and I was, you know, I decided to take a risk and getting into some environmental litigation because I had a friend through the, my business school connections um, who had, had a, a close friend of his who was, uh, doing these radiation cases, um, and I'm talking about radiation in the, in, the, in the oil field, and no one had been doing that. And so I got involved with this case called, the, it was Greffer versus Exxon, and in 2001 we got a verdict for $1,056,000,000 here in Civil District Court in, in New Orleans against Exxon, and then we had to fight on appeal for a number of years. Eventually it was reduced because the billion was in punitive damages, which was, you know, about 20 times, you know, the 56 million, a little bit less, but 18 times, I guess. And so um, we ended up, you know, the, the, we went up to the Supreme Court twice, U.S. Supreme Court, State Supreme Court, and it was reduced to two times punitive damages. So the, the ultimate punitive verdict, you know, was 112 million plus the 56 for the cleanup of the property. And we represented a judge and his family. It was uh, Judge Greffer who, um, you know, uh, you know, brought that case to us and hired me to be his lawyer. And so, so that was like the biggest thing that it happened pretty early in my career, probably, you know, six years, you know, six years after I you know, started practicing. So what did you, um, what did you ask the jury for? We asked for 3 billion. And, uh, <laughs> the, um, you know, it was, uh, do you know, you know how many billion dollar verdicts there have been in the United States ever? Where a juror and I, and I get you didn't recover exactly that after the fact, but for one moment in time, the judge says, "And, and what?" Asked the juror, the foreperson, "What is your verdict?" And the and the person says, "A billion. That hasn't yeah, that hasn't happened many times. It, I don't. I don't. It doesn't happen very often. I think in at that point in time, we were we didn't we were quite number one. We were like the second biggest verdict, but we I think we still remain the largest verdict for a single plaintiff. You know, a lot of those billion dollar verdicts are more like, a, you know, a bigger multi plaintiff kind of class action type of thing. This, you know, you got to think these are four owners to this property and this is one property. You know, it's, it's, it was like a single one-off case. So it was really kind of a special 
uh, verdict. Um, man, I was like, my ears were ringing when that came. I mean, it was just kind of stunning. It's like, you know how it is. You get that surreal feeling where, yes. is this really happening? I yeah. feel like it's surreal just to talk to you about it 20 yeah. years later. I, I, <laughs> it's, uh, I yeah, met a lot was, of trial lawyers. Cool. You know, I, I, there was a, a friend of mine who worked on the case with us. Um, you know, we were, we were kind of cool in our heels, uh, you know, getting some lunch, waiting for a jury to come back. We didn't think, you know, we weren't, and we got a call from the courthouse and we were probably two blocks from the courthouse. So I remember we were running back, uh, to the courthouse and my briefcase, <laughs> the handle broke on it. We were like hustling into the courtroom, trying to make it, you know, uh, skidding in, in, in through doors and, you know, trying to, you know, get there to hear the verdict. And it was really an all or nothing thing. I mean, Exxon was looking to just try to, you know, kill this case. Um, and you know what's funny about it is, you know, most of the cases I've had to try, usually there's some kind of real disconnect between the, the plaintiff and the defendant somehow that causes a case like that to go to trial. Um, because if, if Exxon had said, we'll clean up the property, property and here's $10 million, you know, I, I think my client would have climbed over my back to get that settlement. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Um, you know, Judge Graffer was not about the money. He was a real, he was an older guy. He and his family were, he'd been a public servant almost all of his life. His son's now a judge. Um, he was not a high-flying guy. And Exxon tried to make it out like he was going to take the money and run off to an island. Well, this guy's from Gretna, Louisiana. He's been here forever. He was an older guy. He's he's not going anywhere, you know. And he's not a he's not a player down in the in the, in the Caribbean, you know. Um, so they just really mis made some miscalculations and forced us to go to trial. They just didn't see the case at all. And it was kind of the the first really big um, we call them norm cases, naturally occurring radioactive materials cases. It was one of the first of its kind. So there wasn't a lot of track record for verdicts for these cases. And the oil companies really didn't know how to, I guess, value them or really didn't take them as being very serious cases for some reason, you know? So you have this great tr track record of success, trials and settlements and, and all kinds of stuff like that, but your personality is noticeably different than most trial lawyers. I, I think it... it um, which is and, a good thing. Yeah, and I, and, and I, I sincerely mean that as a compliment because yeah. people think trial lawyer and they think what you see on TV. And, yeah. and, and so you know, for the people who are thinking about becoming a trial lawyer, or maybe they're a new trial lawyer, how do you see the job as a trial lawyer? Like wh when you have a case and you, when you take a case, at least us, we don't always know which ones are going to be trials and which one aren't going to be trials. But what are you thinking about in, just when you take any case? I mean, first, because I do plaintiff work and I have to make sure that the cases I take, I think are going to be successful. I work backwards. I look at damages. You know, can we get damages? Can we collect damages? Yeah. And, and then I work backwards as far as, you know, from there, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got the best liability in the world or you, you know, you have the best facts in the world, but if you can't collect a judgment at the end of the day or get someone to pay, then it doesn't matter. Right. So I work backwards. Um, the other thing, you know, about cases is, you know, I, I think it's really important to have a good plaintiff. And that was one of the things that we had in this case. We had a judge who was, you know, salt of the earth, really good egg, great guy. And that's important to jury, you know. Um, 
I think a lot. I've seen some bad trial lawyering before, and I, I often think that sometimes the lawyer's egos get in the way of the case. Like sometimes it starts to become about the lawyer, less about the case and the client, and I think that's a big mistake. You know, if my job is to communicate effectively and try to tell a story and present it in an effective way so that I can maximize my client's results, so I can make a, do a, compel, make a compelling story, make, make the jury understand what rules have been broken, what laws are, have been violated, why the defendant should be held accountable, and then what, what the law requires as far as justice, and justice is delivered in terms of dollars and cents. We don't have an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth kind of thing. It's, it's you have to pay money. And, you know, that's, that's kind of my view of, you know, cases and trials, you know, in a nutshell. Um, and that's, that's a real quick kind of overview of it, but there's a whole lot more to it. But yeah, beautiful, beautiful answer. <laughs> Time out. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, what advice would you give uh, to prep for trial? What would be some advice to give other attorneys if you're prepping for trial? Um, gosh. Uh, or, or say a lawyer, a young lawyer who's never done a single trial. You're going to do your first trial. We ask the people this. Yeah. You're, you're going to yeah. say, this like, is your first I mean, trial. What are you going to tell your nephew or niece who's going to do their first trial? You know, God, that's a really hard question to ask because there's kind of like different pieces to that question. But I, let me let me start with like just first is kind of making sure you check all the boxes. Like I, I, I early on, even with the Greffer case, I developed, uh, you know, before they had a lot of case management software and a lot of um, is is just trying to, you know, look at what the structure of the trial is and all the things you've got to do and what the schedule is. I mean, it's kind of a logistics kind of, you know, when you're producing the movie, you know, what things need to happen first and last, and you can't miss anything. Like, you can't shoot the movie unless the cameras are are there and all the wires are set up and the set is ready to go. You know what I mean? Right. So it's things like that, like making sure, you know, you you know who your witnesses are and make sure that they, you yeah. know, are, are subpoenaed and you've got them and you've got prep time scheduled and you've done all those things to get prepared for the trial. Because there's so many moving parts getting ready for a trial. Um, and then you kind of got to also back up and look at the big picture, which is, you know, the storytelling aspect of it. You know, what am I really trying to say here? How am I trying to tell a, a compelling story to this jury? And, you know, what's the structure of that? Because, you know, you're going to have your, you know, you're going to have your, your voir dire, you know, if the judge lets you do a voir dire and you need to do your voir dire in a compelling way that, fits with your story because you're selling as soon as you start talking to that jury, uh, you know, and that's, I would you know, challenge you on that. The minute you walk in the courtroom or the jury walks in the courtroom, right? They're taking in right. the way you act, right. the way you interact with your client, the way you walk, the way you right. interact with the clerks. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they're all looking and it, it's amazing what jurors will pick up on. So like, you know, I mean, if you've got, if you got like say like a you know even like the smallest details, I'll talk to my clients about this. My experts like, if you've got a cancer case, like a client who has lung cancer, you don't want your health physicist to walk into courtroom with a pack of cigarettes in his pocket. You know what I mean? Probably. And you also Probably don't not. want you know the family of your client out you know outside the courtroom smoking around the door. You know you want to 
you know, juries pick up on the smallest things. They'll pick up on, on little things like that. And it's not really a small thing. You know, maybe you don't really know it, but it's a big thing. I mean, smoke, that's the biggest defense to a radiation exposure lung cancer case is, you know, is, you know, maybe they were exposed to cigarette smoke. You know what I mean? Right. And so you've got to really kind of, you know, control those kinds of things. And I've heard stories uh, and seen things where, you know, like I had one case where we went to trial and we fortunately settled it during the trial, you know, before the jury came back. We'd actually rested juries deliberating and we worked out a deal with Shell Oil on some workers who were exposed to, to phenol, uh, you know, working at a plant and they had uh, neurotoxic injuries. And we had three clients and one of them was talking about how he couldn't drive. And, you know, we settled it and then after the jury came back, they didn't render a verdict, but we got to talk to some of them. And one of the jurors brought up that she had seen him drive to the courthouse one day. You know what I'm saying? So that's the kind of stuff that can really bite you in the ass. Yeah. You don't even, you know, right. you don't have total control of it. And it's, it's not that the lawyer didn't do his job. It's that like maybe your client just goofed somehow. Um, I had another client who he was really nervous and really upset. And, um, you know, we tried the case and I didn't know this, but he and his his uh, wife went to a restaurant and he had a bit too much to drink and I put him on the stand right after I didn't know he'd had anything to drink I put him on the stand right after uh, lunch and um, you know he got a little sassy with the judge in front of the jury and oh, it was no. and, and I didn't really realize what had happened until you know much later um, you know so there's 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 things like that you got to kind of watch out for yeah um, so some of that, could, could you say like yeah. prepping your client on how to act and and like you know if you're not supposed to drive don't drive well that, that that's huge right yeah. yeah yeah and um you know trials are hard for people you know they, they they haven't been in a courtroom they're 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 not used to what's going on it's it's an unusual situation for them and uh you know you really have to talk about okay how do you dress how do you act remind them like you know like bob said that the jury at Gitco, they're going to be watching you and looking at you and evaluating you. And it's not only how you act in the courtroom, it's also how you act in the hallways. You know, on the first day when you're on your way up the elevator, you don't know if you've got a potential juror who might end up on your in your jury box, you know, riding that elevator with you heading to the jury pool. You know what true, I mean? True. Or you might cut them off in the parking lot and piss them off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like that. you got to really, like, bring it to the client. They've got to be on their best behavior you know, and really develop a relationship with your client, you know, well in advance of the trial where you can talk to them and they feel comfortable talking to you about, you know, their fears, their concerns, and and, and you can really try to, you know, make sure they they do what they need to do to help win the case, you know? Yeah. So, so I want to transition here a little bit. Super fortunate to have met you through our mutual friend, uh, Jenny Levine. Yeah. partners um, and I think it's a really interesting scenario you're a really well-known guy with these huge verdicts and we're a smaller firm more boutique we like to say or focus on the customer service and we're, we're trying to be operating at a national level uh, but it's been really a, a privilege to to have worked with you and continue to do some stuff together and, and what we're doing right now is the firefighter foam stuff so uh, yeah so let, I, I want to talk about some of the, the firefighter 
foam. But how did you get involved in this originally? I know you're you're one of the leaders in the the country, and but how did it come to you? Yeah, firefighting foam uh, that happened organically. Um, my my law partner Ashley Lauza, she had a friend who was a um, a military. Her, she was married to a military firefighter, and the um, you know they they he had you know testicular cancer. Young, healthy guy. I mean, he's like in his you know mid thirties, I think, and um, was married to a lawyer. And they 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 came to us and saying, "Look, we've heard this firefighting foam has carcinogens in it, and we were wondering if you could take a look at this because they knew what we do." And um, you know, so we sat down with them and we really looked into the science of this. And um, so when we is this about? There, yeah, about, go ahead. Yeah, what? So give us a little time frame though. This is a, a while ago, I assume. Yeah, this is. I don't know. This is like you know, five years ago. I think it yeah. was. Yeah. And um, because of that, we got interested in doing these firefighting phone cases. And my friend Paul Napoli, who's doing another environmental case with me up in New York, um, I, I I knew he was associated with some of these cases, and I called him. And he said, "Yeah, we're getting an F. We have a, a you know a uh, an MDL that we're putting together. You want to get on the exec- executive committee? Because I've done a lot of groundwater cleanup cases, and I've done a lot of cancer cases, you know, toxic tort stuff. So um, I said, "Yeah, let's do it." And we just started running with it, um, acquiring a lot of cases and, and making it happen. And so, so the people who don't know what an MDL is, what's an MDL? I was going to ask. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> what's an MDL? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Yeah. <laughs> An MDL is a multi-district litigation. It's a way for federal courts, when you have cases that are filed all over the country and they relate to the same issue, you have a federal judicial panel that um, will look at you know these filings all over the country and someone files a motion, sometimes the defendant, sometimes a plaintiff's group, to have all the cases consolidated in front of one federal judge who will, where all the cases will be tagged and put mass consolidated in front of this federal judge and all future case file cases will also go to that federal judge so the judge can manage the litigation and the judge tries to um, deal with things like discovery and all the cases you know uh, tries to start setting some bellwether trials bellwethers are designed to uh, give the parties information about whether uh, you know what the verdicts might look like so that they can think about trying to settle the the nationwide case ultimately that's what these what the courts are trying to do is is resolve all these cases efficiently and manage them in a way so that um, they can get they can get them done without overburdening the, the court system. Gotcha. So, and also having consistency in results. You know, if you have one judge who makes those decisions, then um, you know you don't have different judges making different decisions. You get different different right. Uh, it's just more consistent. Result. Yeah, right. it's right. more fair for your plaintiffs and your defense, where they, there's not this uh, different outcomes for similarly situated for us clients or plaintiffs. Right, right, right. And those bellwethers are, are really important. You know, as far as that's what we're doing in, in the MDL now is the first uh, water provider bellwether. Water providers are the the folks who have polluted water. Uh, Stewart, Florida is the first case that's going to trial in July. And so the judge is hearing the Dauberts, and then they're going to have a trial in July. And, you know, the judge has also ordered mediation. And, of course, you know, trials trials drive settlement. So, you know, having a mediation with a trial pending is important because, you know, the defendant, the plaintiffs don't want to get a zero, and the defendants don't want a big whopper, 
you know, billion dollar verdict, right? Because um, that'll just raise everybody's expectations and make the settlement value go up for them. So that's that's the idea behind it. So that makes sense. Yes, it does. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but going back to the firefighter foam, so like, what is it and what is it used for? Yeah, firefighting foam is um, used to put out really hot fires. Okay. Um, it looks a lot like you know, like like a bubble soap kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It, you know, they have it at airports, you're required to have it. A lot of military bases have it, use it in refineries. So wherever you have a, like a, a real hot fire, like a fuel fire, you know, if you have like a, you know, you get a grease fire in your kitchen, you don't want to pour water on it, right? Right. You want to smother it. And so that's what this stuff does. It really, you spray it on the fire and it covers and, and covers it and starves it of oxygen and makes the fire go out. Um, so big sites that are causing the toxicity are like military bases because military bases, there was a lot of training and use of the firefighting foam. Airports are a big source because airports, they spray it around and, you know, they also train for it there because you might have jet fuel fires and the FAA mandated that they have that type of foam, uh, during certain years. And then you even have municipal fire, fire departments that have it. Mm -hmm. And, um, because this stuff is really toxic and it doesn't take a lot of it to be toxic you know it, it and it persists in the environment it doesn't really biodegrade it finds its way to groundwater it accumulates and just kind of sits there contaminating groundwater firefighters are using it spraying it all over the place um, after the fire there's fumes that they breathe in uh, they get it on their hands or you know you know breathing in actually using it and training with it um, a lot of them didn't know it was toxic, so you hear stories like they were spraying it for fun in the firehouses or oh. washing the trucks with it or, you know, just, just using it all over the place. And then it accumulates on your clothing and you bring it into the firehouse where you're sleeping and eating and playing cards or whatever you do during the day. And you get dust that resuspends, you know, in the firehouse, so there's additional exposures right. there as well. And it's toxic from like touch, breathing in, ingestion, all of it? Because I mean, they're probably yeah. coming in contact yeah. with it in many different okay. ways. Okay. Exactly, there's, there's um, yeah, right, breathing it, ingesting it, and, and touching it are all exposure pathways to get, to get poisoned by this stuff. And how many years do you think that this has been in use? Ooh, it's been in use for, for many decades. Okay. Um, they've reformulated and they, they now have a requirement to use different types of foam, but this C, they call it a C8 because of the, the carbon chain eight chemical has been around for a long, long time. I mean, they started using it, um, you know, I think in the 1950s in, in, in great quantities. So it's been out there for a long time yeah, I think and it's all over the place. Originally developed by the military, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but foam goes back almost a hundred years in, in some form yeah. or another. Right. But when did they start phasing out the toxic? Um, they phased it out, I think, early in the, the, the mid-2000s. Okay. They started phasing it out. Yeah. So this can expose a lot of people over the course of yes. many years. Yes, <laughs> a lot of, yes. I, I think a, lo a lot of people have come into contact with it. Um, there's a lot of um, people who are drinking it in their drinking water and don't know it's there. Mm hmm um, also, you know, you have a lot of firefighters who were exposed over years. Uh, we're, we're, every day I get, you know, another military firefighter or, you know, municipal firefighter who's 
been exposed. Yeah. And there's studies showing that certain types of cancer are associated with it. I expect that, you know, we're going to add to that list of cancers as the science develops. Um, but they're, they're, you know, right now we know um, kidney cancer and testicular cancer and, um, you know, some others are, are definitely associated with it. Yeah. And I know we'll touch a little bit, we'll touch base more on that in a minute. But what are some of the companies that have manufactured this foam? Like, are there specific, who are they? Um, yeah, we've got, uh, we've got um, uh, Dow Chemours is a big one. Uh, 3M is a big player in this. Those are the two biggest ones. You also have Kitty, uh, BASF. There's about 30 different manufacturers and, um, and distributors that are being sued in the MDL right now. Um, they're all, you know, it's a product liability case for them mm -hmm. that they manufactured a product that they knew was unsafe, failed to warn about it, and it was defective, and uh, put it into the stream of commerce. And so that's the legal theory, essentially, that, that, that we're advancing here with respect to the manufacturers and distributors, because under the law, anyone who, not just the people who make it, but the, the, the companies that also you know, put it in the marketplace, sell it, and distribute it are also liable. Right. Similar to what you have in the, the opioid cases, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, and they didn't just harm the people using it, but then the water that got contaminated around it and was used. Right. And Yeah, yeah there's there's kind of, there's a couple of different parts to it. You have the firefighters who are exposed. You have people who um, were exposed to their drinking water and, um, you know, contaminated groundwater, that kind of thing. And then you also have uh, you know, the, uh, the, the municipal drinking water suppliers who are, you know, trying to get filtration and clean up their groundwater. You know, right. filtration for, you know, some of these costs tens of millions of dollars to build out a filtration plant that can handle the water and, 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 and uh, you know, make it safe to drink. And um, so there's a, there's a lot of money to recoup for these governmental entities. We feel that taxpayers shouldn't have to bear this. The the chemical companies that made these chemicals and made money and put them into the stream of commerce and and knew right you know, knew that they were toxic should pay right and the term we hear all the time and you're hearing it more and more which i think is good for this case is forever chemicals that's what you're talking about yeah right yeah it's it's got a couple different names like the mdl i'm in is called a triple f that stands for aqueous film forming foam a f f f f that's the firefighting foam specifically. The chemicals in it are PFOS chemicals. Um, and uh, there are different types of PFOS chemicals within the firefighting foam uh, that, that, that we're talking about. Um, they're all C8 chemicals. Uh, we have experts who can actually look at the structure, chemical structure of the chemical and determine who manufactured it um, because some of these these chemical companies actually have patents on these chemical structures. You know, they've, they've got, you know, uh, this, this is ours. We own it. And this is, you know, our, our chemical, which is nice for us as far as associating that chemical company with, you know, particular contamination. Right. So they get exposed to these chemicals and you said they're forever chemicals. What does that, what does that mean again? Yeah. Forever chemicals. Um, these chemicals, because they're man-made and the, the way they, 
part of the reason they're so useful is they don't break down in the environment. Like, you remember Scotchgard? You know, you spray it on your tennis shoes or your, your sofa. Maybe you're too young for Maybe. that. Maybe. I, I don't know. I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, or, um, or nonstick uh, cookware. You yeah. Know, where they, yeah, the black pan, yes. right? Well, part of the reason it's so effective is that it repels, you know, it repels water, and it, it's it, it it's a, a it's it's a chemical that that does a lot of things in a very useful way, but part of its usefulness uh, also makes it hard for the environment to break down. You know, once it gets into the environment, it doesn't biodegrade by natural processes. You know, I mean, if, you know, you take an apple, you throw it out the window, you come back, you know, a couple mm. weeks later, there's not much of it left, right? Right. Um, this stuff just kind of it kind of stays there and doesn't go anywhere and then it kind of it accumulates in the environment like it'll what happens is they spray it on the spray it on the ground or at a firefighting training facility and then it the the material eventually starts to go in through natural processes seeping into the groundwater you know it rains and the and the water starts to filter down through the groundwater and the chemical comes with it and it hits groundwater and it starts to accumulate there and it doesn't break down it stays there and you also have the same problem in the human body it gets in your in your body much much like you know i guess an example is lead yeah you know, where it just builds very, up right it builds up you're not very good at, your body's not very good at getting it out of of your system mm -hmm. so it bioaccumulates in your in your in your body and uh, you start to get a load of it you know, your, your toxicity right. goes up, your blood serum you levels. You become toxic, increase. essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and then you get sick. Right. Uh, we can actually go test the blood to determine, you know, what your blood serum level is today. And if you your last exposure was, say, 10 years ago, you can scientifically look back and say, well, what your highest level was in the date of your last exposure. Wow. That's scary. Like, I don't, I don't know. What are I'll tell you what, it's the biggest environmental toxic tourist case I've ever been involved with. I mean, that I've seen, I mean, um, right. well, I, I also mean, think it's sad because I mean, obviously firefighters, they risk their life every day and then someone yeah. provides them with something that's going to hurt them in the long run. And I think that's a really sad situation. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's, that's the reason, you know, we got into it was, uh, you know, our friend, you know, hearing that he was really sick had really taken care of himself. This guy's not a smoker. He's not a drinker, just runner, always really physically fit guy. And then he comes down with this debilitating disease, right? And, um, you know, it's one thing for somebody to be a firefighter and sign up to, like, take the risks of running into a burning building, right? Mm -hmm. or, or, or run towards the flames, right? A lot of people think you run the other way, right? But they, they take that kind of risk, you know, and they're willing to, but this was a risk right. that they didn't know about. They didn't know how to protect themselves, you know, so they, they just, um, you know, they, they hadn't, they didn't have a choice. Right. And so that just strikes me as wrong. Yes, I agree. I think they need to be held accountable for it. So when they're exposed to these chemicals, are there any symptoms that they start developing and like how soon? Will they develop them after being in contact? Yeah, I mean, um, there's there's a few different things that happen with this. It, it tends to attack your immune system, so uh, it makes people more susceptible to getting sick and, 
and yeah. all the things that happen with a compromised immunity. But that also tends to be a, a reason why some people get certain types of cancer. And this does seem to target certain organs like your liver and your your prostate and your, your kidneys. Okay. And um, the things there's that a filter, thing called, things that filter oh, the things that filter bad stuff out of your body. Exactly. Right. That's right. Exactly right. And so um, you have a what's called a latency period for cancers, and there's no exact science to that. It's just kind of like a range mm -hmm. that you know if you got exposed today, you wouldn't expect you know you're going to get cancer tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You may not get it next year, but you give it five, 10, 15, 20 years, then there's, a, you know, your, your chance of cancer increases. And so you'll, the time, last time of a point of exposure, your time of exposure is different than when you actually get the disease. So right. that's, that's the thing about it. It's like when they're getting exposed to this, they don't feel anything. You don't notice anything. Right. You're fine. You can be healthy for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then the next day you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed with kidney problems. Yeah. And kidney cancer. And so, it doesn't matter on the amount of the Exposure well, or it does matter. The, the amount's important. Okay. Um, there's no bright line rule about amount, but um, all all toxicity has to do with um, you know exposure and your dose. You know how much are you yeah. being exposed to? There's okay. a, there's a little Latin term, right? The uh, the the dose is the poison. Is the translation right? Is, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's lots of sayings about that that kind of stuff, but it's 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 the dose that ends up you know okay. ultimately causing the disease or this, you know, making these, you sick. Right. And these firefighters, the firefighters are getting dosed every day. Right. Big doses, heavy doses responding to Mike and I are working on a case, a, a guy who responded to a plane crash, who's essentially bathing in the stuff, searching, right. searching a, uh, a plane that had crashed on right. the runway and just looking for survivors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Bob, you're right. I mean, that story's like, I mean, that, that plane crash story is com really compelling because, I mean, the guy's just, like, covered in firefighting foam. Yeah, Doesn't uh, know to wash it off, right? He's, like, going to do interviews afterwards and, yeah, you know, whatever for, for with the all people this stuff all over it. It's, it's Continental Flight 1404 in Denver, and uh, the plane crashes on takeoff. Crosswind is suspected. The plane breaks in half. They're worried about jet fuel blowing up. They douse it in the chemical, and and we're representing one of the first responders, second guy on the scene, and him and his buddy clear the plane to make sure there's no children left behind. And they're yeah. going through digging in the foam to make sure there's no people there. Right. That's that's the type of people we're we're representing, and and he has right. really horrible cancer. It shows up eight mm. years. It's like right on eight year latency period, and he is. Um, right. Very, Always. very serious diagnosis. And mm. yeah. yeah, I mean, you see a lot of sad stories like that and they're heroes. I mean, let's face it, these, these heroes got poison and they're on the front lines. I mean, you know, they're getting a lot of exposure um, and they may be getting a little bit from their drinking water at home too, you know, uh, but they're definitely, in my view, getting, you know, some of the highest doses you know, people are, are, are experiencing. So yeah. I know in th that case we're talking about, the FAA comes to re respond. They interview him before he takes a shower. They want to know what happened what, what happened to this plane crash. He wore that the, that kit for the next four years until it got replaced. Wow. Uh, so every day he was putting that back Putting, out. getting Put, exposed, yeah. yeah. And he's, yes. walk, he's walking around the station, and even the guys who weren't there that day, they're exposed to his gear mm -hmm. for four yeah. years. Right, right, and and then you know the it, it, it dust accumulates off of that, 
and it gets into the, wherever he is, like the, the fire station where he's working, and it just yeah. kind of resuspends through, you know, the air conditioning and eating system. You know, dust just kind of gets blown around right. inside a building. So you're constantly, yeah. Exactly, being. recirculating it. And um, so the cancers that, tell me again, the cancers that, it, that are being developed from the exposure. Well, you've got testicular, mm-hmm. you have uh, kidney, um, you have uh, thyroid, uh, prostate. Um, there's some concerns about breast cancer, okay. um, you know, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, some leukemias. Uh, there's a number of other, I might have missed a couple, but there's, there's about 10 different cancers and diseases that we're accepting cases on. And if you uh, and before we forget to where where can people find you? Where where uh, Stegloiza website obviously um, yeah. if they want more information, uh, King Law. Yeah, or, I mean Stagli use a website. Uh, I know, you know, uh, just type in Mike Stag S T A G. I have one G. Liuz is a little bit harder to spell L I U Z Z A, um, and uh, you know you can find us there. Just send us a message. You know. I, every day I'll get, you know, the emails. If you email our firm website, it'll it'll come across, and, I, and we will see it. I personally will see it because I I get copied on all that stuff. Or you can call us. Uh, we have a team of, you know, experienced people who've been working on these cases, and we can help get you going. Um, it's not that hard to get involved. We just screen to make sure that, you know, you qualify from our view as far as being a good case because. Obviously, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we can make the case if well, I take it. Talking about that, like what makes a good case? So if someone wants to, someone's been exposed and they want to know, like, hey, am I a potential case? What do they look for? Yeah, I mean, it, look, if you were a firefighter and you used foam or were exposed to foam in some way, either through training or use of fires, you know, that's someone we want to talk to. If you have one of the cancers we just, just t- talked about, then, you know, that could be a good case as well. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, that's, that's it. Um, we'll take it from there. We'll get your medical records and, you know, you know confirming the diagnosis and, and getting into some of the details about exposure and, you know, how long you were exposed, when you were exposed. But most of these firefighters, they're a great group to work with. I mean, look, they, they know what they've done. They know where they were, what they did. They know if they, uh, you know, used the foam, didn't use the foam. They know how much they were exposed to. And they know whether they have a disease that qualifies or not, or they have a cancer. Right. Um, and and they're, they're very engaged. They're more concerned about, I mean, I know they're concerned about themselves, but they're also concerned about their families, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really concerned about taking care of their, their kids, grandkids, their wife. You know, they, they want to make sure that, um, or husband. I mean, we do have a few female firefighters. So, um that's kind of that's kind of the deal, you know. I do have a question though, because something that might be a hurdle within these cases is, I mean, firefighters are exposed to many things that are toxic. So the mm-hmm. smoke that they breathe in, even their suits themselves, um, have some sort of like toxic materials. How do you overcome? Or is that something you're going to have to try in your cases to overcome the fact that they're exposed in other ways, not just from the foam? Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to do that with any toxic exposure case. That's one of the defendant's arguments is not me, somebody else, or something else. You right. Know? 
um, you have to do that. Uh, firefighters, you did mention the turnout gear, which is something I really didn't mention, but yeah. turnout gear actually has these PFOS chemicals in them as well. Yeah, I just learned so, that uh, recently. Yeah, so we are filing suit and including the, the turnout gear manufacturers too. Okay. You know, in our view, it's kind of like the jury gets to sort that out. You mm -hmm. know, was it from the, the firefighting foam or the turnout gear manufacturers? At some point, if there's a settlement, I think they're all going to have to chip in to pay for some of it. Um, but let me give you an example as far as like other other things. Yeah. You know, firefighters, they they do get exposed to smoke, right? Mm -hmm. They get exposed to burning things, which can be toxic. Um, you deal with that with. Well, they were protecting themselves from that. You know, if they're running into the burning building, they're wearing, you know, masks that, you know, protect their breathing from that stuff. You know, when they're training with the foam and they're not worried about it, a lot of times they're not wearing the mask, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe they would have been if they known it was toxic, right? Right. Um, or after the, the fire, you know, after the fire, you know, the, the fumes from the, the, the foam is still coming up, but the fire's out and they're post-fire investigation. So what we try to do is, is, is help inform the jury that their exposures to the firefighting foam are more significant and more dangerous because they didn't protect themselves from it or didn't know to protect themselves from it, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I had a case uh, years ago. It's kind of related to the Judge Greffer Exxon case we talked about. It was Exxon again. Uh, but I had a, a, a worker who was exposed to the radiation coming from the oil field, oil field pipe and he was breathing it in, cleaning pipe, working at a pipe yard. Uh, he had lung cancer. Exxon's defense was this guy was a three-pack-a-day smoker. Okay? So plastic wasn't the radiation. It was the cigarette smoke, you know? And he volunteered to do to smoke. Yeah. Ultimately, um, at the end of the day, through science, we were able to show the jury, look, a smoker gets maybe a 1 in 10 chance of getting lung cancer. Smoking's not good for you. And you can get lung cancer from it. But, you know, only one in ten smokers actually get lung cancer. They might get other things, but the only only one in ten gets lung cancer. But, but you throw in the radiation, exposure on top of the smoking, it's virtually certain he's going to get cancer. Wow. He was doomed to get cancer because of the radiation exposure on top of that. And so the way the jury came out, we got a $15 million verdict on it. No punitive damages in that case. They weren't allowed. Um, but the, 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 the way the jury handled it was they assigned some fault on him for being a smoker as well and took, took you know, some of the money was taken away. So we didn't get the whole $15 million. I think it was like a 25% fault on him saying, okay. well, he was a smoker because he took some risk smoking. Right. And, and, and bore some responsibility for, you know, maybe contributing to his own cancer okay you know, that's how you deal with it okay yeah you know that's just interesting great answer i mean it's a question we get a lot and we have people call us up hey i'm a smoker do i have a case and my answer is yeah we exactly yeah you got a cancer it's really just a contributory causal you know issue well, smoking yeah. i think we all agree smoking is not good for you but it's the science is actually surprisingly not as bad as you think for any individual cancer that, that it is that yeah. a number kind of like what you're talking about yeah, yeah, that, that that's right. I mean, I'm not advocating that people smoke. Right. <laughs> I don't smoke. I, it's a terrible thing to do for your body for a lot of different reasons. But, um, you know, it, it really becomes down to you don't have to show that it's the sole cause of it. 
as long as you can call, show it's a substantial contributing cause and persuade the jury that, you know, to get to get money out of the jury, you really need to persuade them that this is this is the primary cause or a cause that really overwhelms some of the other things. Because we all get exposed to carcinogens. I mean, this, the air we breathe, you know, you know, a lot of people die of cancer from just pollution, air, air pollution, right? I mean, right. it's known the, 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 the you know, the Every year you hear a report about all the people who die worldwide from air pollution. And we get exposed to all kinds of things, you know, every day. But you really just need to show that this is a huge thing that was overwhelms all those smaller factors and um, was something that, you know, you didn't choose to do or you couldn't, nothing you could do about it. It was unnecessary exposure, you know. Right. So, Mike, I'm assuming it's been a privilege to work with you for our firm. Uh, uh, a lot of fun working yeah. together and, and talking strategy and law and all that kind of stuff. But I'm sure you're, you're open to working with other smaller firms or uh, attorneys that are throughout the country. If they get calls on cases like this, uh, you're good with that. Have them reach out to you directly. And uh, absolutely. I think you look, yeah, yeah, Bob, we, we, most of my, my business is referral business. I mean, I work with a lot of firms. Um, I do a lot of work all over the country. I like meeting new lawyers and getting to know them and working with them. Um, you know, I, I just kind of, because of my way my practice just evolved, I, I just do some things that are a little, I guess, sometimes out of the ordinary for a lot of folks. And, you know, but, you know, I love getting to know you and, your, you know, your firm and, and I'm happy to work with other lawyers. You know, I, 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 uh, I really build my business through referrals and other lawyers referring cases to us and working with us, you know? Yeah. And, and I'll vouch for that on the, the big internets here that, uh, you know, some, some law firms, they want your cases and they don't really care about us or what we're trying to do. And we're trying to help people and do things in a particular way. And your experience is really invaluable to our clients. And, uh, I feel like we are working together. And if you're, if you don't, if you want to just, re- I'm sure somebody could just refer you a case and you could take it over. Uh, but that's not what we're doing. That's not, that's not how I want to practice. My clients are my clients and I want to keep that relationship with them. And, but I also have to be humble enough to know, Hey, Mike knows the right expert in this case. And, and we well, need I, to be, we need to be, you with, know, I, I, I want to be humble enough to know that, look, I don't know everything either. I mean, you know, you guys, you know, you're in New York. I'm not a New York lawyer. Uh, you actually, Met with your, the your, the client we talked about, the one in Denver. Right. Um, you know, you 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 sat down with his family and and hung out with them. I mean, that's really valuable stuff, you know. And I think it's really important to have you know uh, someone who has a relationship with a client and build a relationship with with those people. Because I mean, I, I like working together. Um, try. I mean, you, people can hand me hand me hand off a case to me, and I'll just run with it. I'm fine with that too. But I I, I like working with you know, good lawyers who, you know, you know, really, um, you know, they, they have their clients interest at heart. I mean, that's, what's important. I mean, that's all what we're trying to do is do something good for our clients. And that's, that's what I want to do. And that's, I want to work with lawyers who want to do that. Yeah. And I think it's really been a privilege for me. I've co-counseled with a number of firms throughout the years and, uh, it's a great way for us to increase our skills, ability, and see how you do things. And then we bring that back to our clients in even a different case. You know, we, we, yeah. we learn from each other and uh, it's a lot of fun for us. Yeah, it's a lot of fun for me too. Uh, and we like what we're doing. And, and, and I'm, I, like, I love this podcast. This is awesome, man. I really. Thanks. Cool. <laughs> I, I think we've learned a lot. And it's like, if, uh, 
if you do it for the podcast and the people at large, people are so open and in giving of your experience, these, these great moments in your career and things that are really important to your clients. It's, uh, it's been a way that I think everybody who's been on has really shared some, some stuff from the heart. So right. we appreciate you and all the other folks who, who have shared with us. And we care a lot about lawyers doing the right thing for people. And yeah. Great, great. And, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for inviding me to, to, yeah. do, to do this with you. Of course, you're welcome back anytime. What, um, <laughs> so, um, social media, or can people find you on social media, or is that not a big uh, thing at the Mike Stagg Law Firm? Well, yeah. no, we're, we're on Facebook. Um, you know, I, I, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, there's, there's a couple other things. Uh, Ashley kind of helps me with a little bit of that. Um, you know, we, we try to, we try to like really, you know, we've been really making an effort to try to write a lot of articles to help people about, um, you know, with certain legal issues, like, you know, how do you file, what's the process? How do you file a lawsuit? You know, how do you, how do you, um, you know, what, what can you expect? What are the damages? You know, just, just things to help people become more familiar about, uh, you know, what a case involves and how it works. And mm -hmm. we talk a little bit about groundwater cases and, you know, just also personal injury cases, toxic tort cases, all kinds of different things. What um, other, just, yeah, what other things are you working on right now besides AFFF? Um, I've always done a lot of oil field cleanup cases uh, that in, in, in New Orleans, you know, I, I, because the Greffer and suing oil companies, I, I started getting a lot of clients who, who had problems with oil companies. And it, we have a lot of old, um, what they call legacy cases, which are old oil fields. And the old oil fields, of course, they didn't like clean them up and they created pits. You know, you just dig a big hole and you dump all the, the waste from the, the oil wells in there. And they put everything from, you know, produced water that comes out of the well and they put it there and, and it has a lot of toxicity in it. You're drilling muds, drilling fluids, those things. And also the radiation, of course, accumulates at the top too. Um, so you'll, you'll have processes that concentrate the radioactive materials and then it gets dumped on the surface of the property. And that'll cause problems not only with the surface of the property, but also cause problems with the groundwater, your shallow groundwater, your deep groundwater. So I, I've got a case that we're going to trial on in July against an oil field comp company. We represent some farmers who had what you call a, is a saltwater injection well, where they take waste from the field and they inject it into the in, in deep underground to dispose of it. And the, uh, the well had a defect in it and it caused the waste material to get injected in the wrong zone and contaminated their aquifer. Plus they left a bunch of pits on the surface. So we've got a basically an oil field cleanup case against um, an oil company coming to trial. So those are kind of fun because they're, you know, they're smaller and they kind of, you know, it's kind of our bread and butter kind of thing. Been doing those a long time. <laughs> Sounds like a good case. Yeah. Yeah. I, we think so. It's, it's, you know, they always have their ins and outs, but um, it's a, uh, it's fun trying to help people get their property cleaned up. That's that's important too, you know. Right. Yeah. The process to clean that up is probably extensive. It is. Um, if it's possible at all. <laughs> it is possible. It, it's just expensive. It depends on how much you want to spend. Gotcha. Um, you know what they end up doing is you 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 pick up the the dirt and you take it someplace and bring in new fill. To, you know to make it fit for farming and. This is in an area where you could build a house. So you, they do. They're rice farmers. They do a lot of rice farming there. Okay. Um, which also means they do crawfish farming because 
the old rice fields, they actually, you know, when they're sallow, they'll, they'll grow crawfish in them, you know, when they're not growing rice. And, um, you know, crawfish tend to uptake a lot of, you know, heavy metals and bad stuff. So you don't want to give people, you know, right. poison crawfish. Yes. So, um, but the groundwater, the way you clean that up is you, you drill a, a, a well and you pull, you pull the water out and you filter it and then you pump it back in. So you kind of cycle it like you have a well that pulls it out and then pumps it back in above so that you're constantly cycling the water. You gotcha. know, you're taking the water like a stream. You're catching the water downstream. You put, put filter it and you pump it back upstream. Okay. And you keep doing that until it clears. And you also have to make sure the surface is clear of contaminants because that will continue to right. to contaminate uh, the groundwater. That's yeah. how you do it. Wow. Yeah. It's ex- it can be really expensive. Yeah, like real- billions, billion, millions? It tends of millions, definitely. Yeah. Uh, we did have a case that the groundwater cleanup alone was like $600 million wow. or something like that to do it. Yeah. You know? Wow. Um, it, it's, uh, those, are, those are really big cases. They can be. Wow. You know. Interesting. They're a little tough because, you know, you know, oil's real popular here. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> necessary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they can, be, they can be a little tricky. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they're important cases. So we've been working on trying to clean up the old oil fields, you know. Nice. Anything and else? We're also, we're also doing some, um, you know, we have a few, uh, you know, I do some catastrophic injury stuff, like if there's a car wreck or, or, or really a, basically some trucking cases really lately. Okay. Um, and then we have some other MDLs. I, I did a lot of the opioid uh, cases. We represented a lot of uh, the, um, we call them parishes here, but they're, you know, counties, okay, uh, counties and cities and towns um, in, you know, for the opioid addiction in the MDL up in Ohio. And a lot of those cases are starting to settle now. And uh, so we did a lot, a lot of opioid litigation for the past, you know, it's been like three, four years now. Do you think that would be similar to like the steroid medication, the medications that they would give people? I think it was like for psoriasis and they were creams and they were steroids but you can become dependent on steroids i guess and you can go through withdrawal for years and i don't oh, really? know if it was really known yeah it's something that i've read about a couple times now oh i hadn't heard about that one yeah yeah i don't know I, I saw it maybe it's not true but I, that's I mean, maybe I, I yeah you know there's, there's a lot of stuff you can get addicted to right the, the opioid stuff is really bad i mean it's like you know I don't know. I think everybody knows someone who's had a problem with that. You know, I know I did. I had a friend who died, you know, and it's kind of, you know, it's, I I think it's really important, you know, work, but uh, that was, that's a big case. It's got some tricky legal issues, you know, Yeah. Um, doing a, 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 under a public, um, you know, nuisance theory is essentially what you're doing and trying to get money to fight the opioid crisis because these towns have, so many people who are addicted. Mm-hmm. It's real problematic. So, My and we are doing a case up in your neck of the woods. Well, it's kind of near you. We're doing an, another case. That one I mentioned with Paul Napoli. That one's starting to heat up. It has to do with um, some Love Canal chemicals. Uh, is it Niagara it's County? A, yeah, it's it's near Niagara. It's in Niagara County. It's a uh, when they when if, if you're familiar with Love Canal, you know they, it was a landfill that had all these chemicals that are really toxic and cancer causing. It was built next to a neighborhood. Well, at some point they built a highway through there 
and they dug out a bunch of it and they put it in a different landfill and forgot about it. And so I have a neighborhood that's next to that landfill. It's now a uh, class two Superfund site. We're getting a lot of toxins in the sump pumps in the basements of these houses. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of different cancers and other kinds of diseases that we, you know, are, are that are caused by the chemicals from the, from the landfill. And so we're working on really moving that case right now. That's a big project of ours. Um, so it's it's you know it's property damage for their houses and properties contaminated, also for the the people who live there got it toxically exposed. So. Well, if you come up this way, you can be in person on our podcast. Yes, I know. I need to come on up visit. You know, Bob, Bob and I need to get together. We got some. We got got to talk some business, man. Yeah, that's uh, hopefully we're going to see a big verdict of your case out of Niagara. That's. Uh, that's a good, That'd that's be a, good, you know. Good I, you, I, you know, your courts in New York, from what I understand, are they're very, they're very busy up there. Yeah, um, we actually had a, a judge courts. from Vermont come in. They brought a judge in from Vermont in the federal court to, to handle the case. I'm not sure if that's the reason why, but I saw some of the statistics are. Some of the courts are, are super busy up there. Yeah, so that's the Western District of New York. That's our home district. There is a courthouse in, in Buffalo, and then there's the courthouse in Rochester, which is just a, a half a block from our office, and we're there we're there all the time, the uh, yeah. Western District. and it's. Uh, I remember the first time I went to the Western District. I was used to county court here, Monroe County Court, and New York State Supreme Court, and, and I thought they were going to give me tea and a, a crumpet or something. <laughs> I wasn't used to the federal court. Yeah, it's a little more formal, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, they run, the trains run on time there, you know? <laughs> you're the one thing for the day, your you're, uh, 15-minute court appearance. Yeah, well, see, that's the way I kind of started, because um, civil district court here, the state this court in in New Orleans, you know, they have a thing called rule day, which is, you know, where they, they on Fridays, they have all their motion practice, right? And we're talking, like, the courts will have, like, 50, you know, motions that, you know, they're trying to get done before, you know, lunchtime, right? It starts at nine. So, so three hours. And the idea being like the airlines, you overbook and a lot of it just gets worked out and goes away. So maybe the judge hears the argument on say like 15, maybe 20, but it's a little bit more rapid fire and, you know, gunslinger shooting from the hip kind of style, as opposed to federal court where you're a little more, you know, buttoned up, you know, you put your your wig on, you yeah. know, as a barrister, <laughs> and you know, do your thing, right? Yeah, well, it's easier to get your ten thousand hours in in, uh, like we say, Rochester City Court. You, right? I, I remember. Yeah. I started. I worked for the government, and uh, one of my friends went to a big law firm, White Shoe. The whole thing, and uh, she came up to argue a case in federal court. And says, "Yeah, I got my. You know, we've been a lawyer maybe five years or four years. I got my first motion argument tomorrow. I'm like, first motion argument. I've I've argued fifteen hundred. <laughs> Yeah, we, we do that right. every day. Uh, it's just different. Just different. Yeah, I remember that. running from judge to judge with multiple oh, oh, yeah. hearings, kind of like, you know, I'll be right back. I've got one up in, you know, Judge Reese's court. I'll oh, yeah. Well, yeah. now it's on the text message. Hey, hey, they're caught. <laughs> Luckily, it's not me anymore, but I'm still on some of the text threads with some of the, the attorneys. And, uh, hey, Frank, they're calling your case. They're calling your case in uh, Judge Sinclair's court. You better get up here. Well, I'm, right. t- tell yeah. her I'm on my way. I'm in this other court. Yeah, you had to be real nice to the clerks, so they would like put you in the back. You yeah. know. <laughs> Hopefully, you had a opposing counsel who was decent enough to like 
<laughs> let the judge know, hey, he's up in you know Division B. I'll be right back, judge. Yeah. You know, can you pass us? Uh, Mike, thanks so much for the work that you do. Yeah. All the people that you, you're helping and talking to us about your your uh, how you've done it, your style. I think is, is really unique and something that other lawyers should pay attention to. You uh, subtle, cool, and then just the results. I think speak for themselves. So. Uh, really a privilege to have you, and uh, looking forward to to the stuff we're working on. Well, you got, you're you're really kind. That's very nice of you to say. I uh, you know thanks for inviting me. This has been fun. I, I enjoy it, um, and you know I, I you know I, I, I'm having fun, man. I really like what we're doing. So um, you know thanks for inviting me to to join you today. Yeah. It's been a privilege to be with you. Yeah. Thanks. Of